Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. What's in a name? When Richard and I began this week's episode, we were struck by the wealth of information packed into two verses. Through the simple arrangement of people and places, Luke leaves a trail of names, like breadcrumbs along a path that moves all through the Bible, well beyond his gospel. In this sense, the beginning of chapter 3 is like an Easter egg, a road sign that pops up along the way and screams, Hey you! Keep hearing the story, because there is a bigger story in motion. There are plenty of functional names to unpack at the beginning of Luke chapter 3, but one stands out among the pack, Licinius. It appears only once, which indicates its significance. In translation, it means the release of sorrow. However, what's far more curious, especially in the passage's context and something we did not know at the time of recording, is that Licinius was also a general of Alexander the Great, mentioned at least twice in Arians on a basis of Alexander. Sometimes it's worth paying attention to the details. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 470 of the Bible as Literature podcast. The more we work through the biblical text, Richard, especially having the opportunity to sit with Father Paul on Tuesdays and hear him explicate the text in Hebrew week after week. You and I were talking today, the more we've come to realize that these verses packed with names in Greek or Latin, be they personal nouns or the names of places, these verses, which are typically ignored in Bible study, overlooked in liturgical services, and dismissed in discussion, People talk about hearing the story and literally mumble over these names as though they don't really matter or are not germane to getting to the point of what's happening in the story. We've come to understand and recognize these are very often the most critical verses in the chapter. If you're not paying attention to the names of people and places, 
and their functional symbolic meaning, you're missing the connective tissue of the author's intent. I want to say that again. With respect to functionality and the connective tissue of the biblical story, if you are not paying attention to place names and the names of people, you are missing what's happening. Just going through this section with you as we're preparing is so helpful because it is so easy to just skip over names, skip over numbers and those sorts of things. But there's so much detail packed into these verses, it would be silly for us to ignore it. I mean, let alone that they're just as much part of Scripture as Jesus's resurrection. It's all part of Scripture. It's all that which is written. So we should take it seriously just on the merits. But skipping over pieces that are less interesting, I used to tell students, I'd say, why are these sections hard for you? Usually it's because they're not meeting your expectations. You expect it to be easy in a particular way. You expect it to be informative in a particular way. You expect it to express itself in a particular way. And it's not following that. But if we're going to listen to what the text is actually saying, then we have to say, well, then I guess it's not meeting my expectations. I have to adjust my expectations. Don't skip the text and thereby modify the text to match your expectations, but modify your expectations so you actually listen to the text. Chekhov is the one who said if your character is going to pick up a gun, then he better shoot it at some point. Luke is going to pack this verse, these verses, with so much detail, geographical and historical, let's assume he's picking it up for some reason, that he's going to deploy this information somehow. We shouldn't assume that he's just a lousy writer. That's lame. <laughs> assume he's a good writer, and is, and you're lame in the way you're listening to the text, and learn from it. Learn from it. What could Luke be doing by mentioning these names? What could Luke be doing by going into so much geographical detail? Why is Luke saying this, O oh, Theophilus? Because evidently, uh, to understand the things that came to pass, you need to know this too. If you're going to tell the professor, we don't need to know this information, but, you know, I don't trust you because the professor knows why you need to know this information. So let's listen to Luke, assume this is important, and learn why it's important, or at least venture a guess why it's important as we read through the text. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Traconitis, and Licinius was tetrarch of Avilini. Okay, I'll stop there. That's verse 1. There's so much information in this first verse. It's mind-bending just to explain that Tiberius was the son of Nero the lunatic and ended up marrying the daughter Julia of Augustus, who was Caesar in the previous chapter. I don't want to spend time explaining the inner workings of the household of Caesar, because I don't find Satanas to be very interesting in the first place, unless it's germane to the overall storyline. What is curious, though, with respect to Father Paul's thesis in the rise of Scripture, 
and this is where I'd like to dig into this verse, Rich, is that the place names, Itureos, Trajonitis, and Avilini, are all either nomadic regions, or in the case of the third one in Syria, a mountainous region. These are territories that would have been the proper setting for nomadic or shepherd life in the ancient Near East. And on the one hand, you have Herod, or the Herodians, represented by the name Herod here, the functional name, who was an imposter with Stockholm Syndrome under the boot of the Romans, sitting on David's throne, trying to extort God's people in order to build a temple, lording his authority over Galilee, but more importantly, with respect to, again, Father Paul's thesis about shepherdism and the rise of Scripture, you have Philip. Now, Philip is the brother of Herod, but at the same time, it's a symbolic name because Philip of Macedon was the father of Alexander. So you have this symbolic tension. You have this Greek name, Philip. It's a Hellenistic name, which everyone would recognize as the name of the father of the conqueror of the region who is exerting power and authority over these nomadic places. And they're also the same region, as you pointed out in our conversation earlier, Richard, this is the same region that John the Baptist comes from. This is where John is hailing from in the Erimos, in the wilderness, which corresponds to the Midbar in the Old Testament. So there's this tension between king and city with these imposters, the fake David and the Greek conqueror versus the shepherd life in the nomadic regions from which we receive God's prophet and apostle. Remember, there's a parallel, of course, between John the Baptist and the apostle Paul, which is why you have Jesus in chapters 1 and 2, and suddenly Paul in chapter 3. We were just talking about Acts and how it is the word that grows mightily in Acts and not the church in the same breath in Acts chapter 19, we hear the admonition, I know Jesus and I know Paul, who are you? Well, we just heard the proclamation of Jesus and now we hear the proclamation of Paul, which is paralleled in the book of Acts. It's all coming together clearly here, Rich, at the beginning of chapter three in the Gospel of Luke. This tension between those human beings who want to flex their muscles from the vantage point of civilization and God who is coming at them from the midbar with the proclamation of his Torah. With this beautiful description of these characters, let's look at how this is laid out. Just imagine, if Luke simply wanted to place us in a historical time, he could have just said 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. It's enough. I mean, we know from our historical records that this is around 29 CE. So why introduce this entire cast of characters if it's simply to place it as a date? 
all these rulers are the rulers of this northern area. We have Tiberius, and then we have the sub-leaders. We have Pontius Pilate, who is governor of Judea, which is far south. You have Herod, of the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea, and the region of Trachonides, and Lysanias, the Tetrarch of Abilini. We have all these northern areas, and then you have Pilate in Judea, which is in the south. Hmm, that's funny. Why do we have three in the north and then one in the south? The one in the south that's mentioned first. We have all the rulers of the entire region, but all of this desert region, the area that's now Western Syria, Western Jordan, and then the Galilee region where we have the sea. But then once you get east of Galilee, you get into the wilderness, you get into the desert where John the Baptist is going to pop up. So the earthly rulership is being established in this verse. Who is Caesar and who are the governors and tetrarchs? And Luke wants us to know the entire lay of the land, wants us not to be thinking of one region, but wants us to be thinking of all four of these regions, not just the Roman Empire, but these specific regions. So as Luke writes it out, we have to be aware of these multiple regions, not just for time. Now we're talking geography. We have to be thinking of this large place, but all of it is falling outside. We don't have Samaria included. We don't have the West included. We don't have Philistia included. We have Judea, and then we have these three other regions. And the three other regions are all in the North, Galilee being more mountainous, but then we have the other two that are farther East and in the desert. This is the geographical map that Luke is drawing through its rulers by depicting by mentioning, by listing the rulers, we bring our minds to the area that this story is taking place in. This is no longer in this small location of the temple. Now we're looking at this larger map of the northern Syrian wilderness and the southwest corner of the Fertile Crescent. I mentioned the three regions, the two being nomadic and the third being mountainous, Avilini. It's Licinius who's over Avilini, which is an interesting point. We don't have much context on that character, Richard. And that's what's fascinating about this. Why is Luke bringing up this person who is a tetrarch, but even Josephus is kind of vague about who this person is. So I can't expect the name itself would ring many bells, maybe. The land is well known, the region is well known, which confirms the point that by mentioning these people, there's an emphasis as well on the geography. What are the regions that these people are ruling? Where is our mind supposed to go in tracking the story? Just because we can't say anything conclusive about him, just because he's mentioned only once, doesn't mean that we should say, oh, well, Luke mentioned him just because he must have been an actual historical artifact. That's the worst thing you can do. What we should do is take note of the fact that Luke mentions something obscure that is not found anywhere else. We should write it down, ask why Luke would do this, and keep coming back to it throughout the Luke-Acts diptych. And it's not just Luke-Acts, it's throughout the whole New Testament because there may be something in the overall 
biblical narrative that connects back to this word or some place associated with this word. If you do a little bit of digging on this character, there is an association, for example, between Licinius and Mount Hermon. What that could potentially mean is difficult to say, if anything at all. But you have to pay attention to these connections. They may not be scriptural. They may not be helpful. But you can't just say, oh, it's just a name. Let's move on. You have to push the text to try to find the connections in the text. And when you don't find one, you have to say, okay, I didn't find it. But you can't give up. You have to write it down and keep moving forward so that when you come across another possible connection, you go through your list of fragments, your list of artifacts, and say, oh, okay, Luke mentioned this earlier, we may have a connection. That's how you work the text. And I want to be clear, you don't work the text. That's how you submit to the text and allow it to work you. You've heard me use the Hebrew verb darash before. You think you're searching the text, but when you submit in this way, it's the text that is searching you. So Licinius was the tetrarch of Avilini in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. So here we have it in verse 2. The fruit of Zacharias learning to silence himself as a priest in the temple, which is something all clergy must submit to. We spent a lot of time on that in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. The grave difficulty, the burden, it is a burden and it is painful. And any priest or teacher, male or female, anyone who gets up to speak in a religious setting, priest or no priest, who thinks it's easy to silence themselves so that when they speak, they are preaching what is contained in the text and not their own words. Anyone who thinks that's not a painful exercise deceives themselves, period. Because the desire to impose yourself, which is glorified in our postmodern understanding of interpretation, which is practically universal in the modern world, that's why Father Paul gets so passionate about it when he's doing his work on Tarazi Tuesdays. That's almost innate in the way that we think and speak in 2023. The idea of submitting to the text is counterintuitive. And there's a whole school of scholarship that would argue it's impossible. Whereas the Bible is saying not only is it not impossible to submit to God's law and instruction, but it's necessary. And that's the metaphor of Zacharias. It's necessary, but painful and difficult because it's a kind of ascesis that really demands of you an inner silence, meaning you don't listen to your thoughts and your ways, but you submit to God's thoughts and God's ways and his instruction. And because Zacharias was willing as the text says, to open his mouth 
so that it would be filled with the words of God, with God's praise and not human praise, the word of God came to John, not the word of Zacharias. Notice the order of the phrasing. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the Midbar, in the Erimos. That's the fruit of his submission. If it wasn't enough to name all these names of people who are ruling on behalf of the Romans, now we've got the rulers of the temple. We've got two high priests, Caiaphas, and I think it's interesting that Caiaphas has to do with a stone or being a depression in the stone as the high priest of the temple. As if we needed these people, we don't have enough information. We don't have enough information. Like you said, Father, we have to be formed by the text. We can't say, ah, I know enough. Why is Luke bothering me with all these details? Why do I have to learn all this stuff? Why do I have to listen to all these things? Luke is telling us it's not enough to know who is Caesar. You have to know who the governors and tetrarchs are. It's not enough to know who the governor, the tetrarchs, and Caesar are. You have to know who the high priests are. So this is how we move through this. And as we know, sometimes the names are functional. Lysanias, who we know the least about, Leo releases Aeneas, sorrow or depression. So he's the one who releases sorrow, depression, but he's an earthly ruler. What does that mean? We have this Caiaphas who's the stone of the temple or the depression, meaning not an emotional depression, but a physical depression what is important about these. We have to listen to all these details to form our idea of the setting, because then comes John, the son of Zechariah. But it's not him who comes, it's the Word of God that comes. It just says John the Baptist was in the wilderness, and then this Word came. The only thing that moves in these two verses is the Word of God. John was there. He was in the wilderness. And he was on the territory of these people. He was not in an unruled wilderness that was ruled by these Roman rulers. But the word of God came to him as he was on the river Jordan in the wilderness under these Gentile rulers. So as we see parallels between John the Baptist and Paul, and we see relationship with Jesus, here we see a clear parallel with Ezekiel. The word of God came to him while he was in the land of the Gentiles in the wilderness under the rule of these earthly Gentile rulers. This is where he received the word of God. Or shall I say better, this is where the word of God came to him. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.